0: Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, what happens when you're doing your family history research and you find conflicting records? Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to McKenna Cooper from Legacy Tree Genealogists. She'll talk about five different things you can do to sort those problems out. Plus, we'll have another ordinary person with an extraordinary find. Hear all about it. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome, 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 America. It is Fisher here on America's Family History Show, Extreme Jeans and ExtremeGenes.com, the program where we shake your family tree. And watch the nuts fall out. Well, we got a couple of great guests today. We're going to be talking to McKenna Cooper with Legacy Tree Genealogists. You know, sometimes you go and you're researching your family and your ancestors and you get information that conflicts with each other. Maybe it's dates. Maybe it's places. Maybe you got a kid who's born a thousand miles away from all the other kids right in the middle of the pack. How do you resolve that information? So McKenna has done a great blog on that, and we're going to hear from her coming up in about 10 minutes. And later in the show, we're also going to talk to a guy from Arkansas, Kelsey Dunn, who took a few tips from Extreme Genes and has solved a 60-year-old mystery concerning his grandmother in France. So we'll hear his story of the ordinary person with the extraordinary find and how he did it coming up later in the show. And if you haven't signed up for our weekly Genie newsletter yet, you can still do it. Just get to ExtremeGenes.com or sign up through our Facebook page. It is free. You get a blog from me each week, links to past and present shows, and links to stories you'll find fascinating as a genealogist. Right now, it's off to Stoughton, Massachusetts, where David Allen Lambert is standing by, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Hi, Dave. How you doing? Hey, I'm
1: doing great. The weather's getting a little chilly out here, but uh, that just means that I can go out and look for hidden cemeteries out in the woods and not
2: get poison.
0: (laughs) That would be a nice (laughs) thing. Hey, have you noticed, by the way, that Ancestry.com has updated their ethnicity estimates. So if you're one of those folks who's gone through and said, okay, do I wear later hosen or do I wear a kilt? Here's how you can find out. And, and I think a lot of people get upset about this sometimes, Dave. And yet at the same time, it's just a continual improvement to help us identify where our people came from.
1: Yeah, well, my wife who's really, she calls herself a genealogical widow. She claims that DNA is going to cause more arguments now that I've looked at ethnicity estimates recently. Okay, my Lambert's from Ireland. Don't know where. Got a great-great-grandmother from the northern part of Ireland. Now, because they're grouping Scotland and northern Ireland together, I have 44% Scotland and northern Ireland. Oh, and it's northern England, too. Yes, and my wife's grandfather was born in Scotland. She's 40% Scottish. (laughs) So I told her I need to buy a kilt, and she told me that I need to uh, reconsider how much genealogy she wants to be discussed with at the kitchen table.
0: (laughs) Oh, really? She's really that upset about this?
1: Well, here's the thing. I can't tell you when the last time I have a traceable Scottish ancestor shy of something from a thousand years ago from one of my royal lines. I can assume that something happened with my fourth or fifth great grandparents, but I don't know anything about them on my Lambert side, Hmm. so I can't go back that far. So who knows? We could be Scottish and Irish, but the paper trail doesn't tell me. The DNA is showing me that, but I put a post out there, please save me, folks. Do I need to go out and buy a kilt
0: today? <laughs> well, you know, I've got a third grade grandfather from Scotland. And finally, I am seeing some Scottish showing up here 4% on my ethnicity mm-hmm. estimate. So it's really interesting stuff. And, you know, they're just refining it all the time to help you get more and more specific. And they're making smaller areas. And that's why these things happen. So don't get upset. It's not that they were wrong before. It's just less focused. That's
1: true. If I look back at a post I did in 2018, the numbers are completely more compacted. I mean, it has England, Wales, Northwestern Europe, 67%. Now that's been divided out, and I get sort of that mixed in between Northwest Europe and England is 26%, and now the Scottish and Northern Irish is 44%. So
0: okay. My head's spinning.
1: Yeah. yeah, mine too. <laughs> and, and so needless to say, my wife says, No more DNA talk at the kitchen table.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to get her upset. Well, there's some great stories out there today. I love this one with Doris Kearns Goodwin talking about how, yeah, she talked about how baseball made her a better historian.
1: Well, that gal from Brooklyn, of course, a big Dodger Blue fan, got a lot of her love for history, it seems, from her dad, who was, of course, following the Dodgers, and she'd want to know, did they win? Did they lose? But as she learned, you had to know the whole story the beginning, the middle, and the end. And this is where she says history has become one of her loves because she learned how to understand baseball that way, and then she took that love of baseball and obviously applied it to history.
0: I love the quote from her. She said, for example, we know that the Great Depression came to an end when we mobilized for the war. We know that World War II was won by the Allies, but the people living in the Great Depression or the early days of World War II did not know that. So you have to recreate their anxiety and their fear and their moments of triumph and their moments of tragedy. So it was really the same thing with baseball and being a baseball fan. I love that.
1: You know, a lot of people go to New York to go to Ellis Island, but what island you may not want to go to is Hart Island. Well, if you do, you're probably going to be in a box. See, Hart Island fish, they're estimating has at least a million people buried there since the 19th century.
0: Yeah, Hart Island is actually uh, way up north of the Throgs Neck area. I mean, if you're familiar with New York, where the Mets play mm-hmm. at Citi Field, it's actually north of that in Long Island Sound, and it's not too far from Westchester County. And there are just all kinds of people who have been buried there for decades upon decades, and this is kind of the poppers field of New York, and nobody ever talks about it.
1: Yeah, the northern half of the island is pretty much tight real estate with uh, deceased that have died on the streets of New York, to prisoners, to children that were found abandoned. We really don't know their names. There's no gravestones per se. So it's really lost stories. So Heart Island may be one of the largest cemeteries in the New York
0: area. We could all have a relative or two in there. That's a lot of people. All right, David, thank you so much. Catch you at the back end of the show for Ask Us Anything. You know, we run into this stuff all the time, conflicting information. What do we do with it? Hey, it's Fisher, and I was just reading this great blog on LegacyTree.com. It was written by my next guest, McKenna Cooper. She's a researcher and editor for Legacy Tree. And uh, McKenna, I I loved everything you said and agreed with everything you said, but what I liked in particular was how you wrote this blog, in particular talking about horses and not zebras. You want to explain where you're coming from with that?
2: Yeah. So horses, not zebras is kind of a common medical phrase that basically means like don't jump to the most exotic or rare diagnosis or conclusion when there's usually a more simple explanation.
0: Well, I've always maintained that the simplest explanation is usually the right explanation. And sometimes you get something weird happen. But for the most part, the reality displays itself. I mean, it's looking you right in the face. And yes, there are other possible explanations, but not as likely. So let's start going through some of the things that people confuse a lot. For instance, I've had people kind of hijack my family search tree on one of the families, and say, "Oh, okay, this middle child was born in Boston, and everybody else was born in England, right?" <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, really, where does that come from? Oh, because the father's name was John Fisher, and was born mm-hmm. around the same time. So you know that this would kind of have you think that uh, John and his wife sailed to Boston, had the child, and sailed back to England. That doesn't work so well,
2: right? probably not what happened
0: (laughs) (laughs) so talk about your analysis when you run into these things
2: yeah so when i do something weird you want to take a step back at first and be like, okay, what is the most logical explanation for this? Is it more logical that someone accidentally merged two families with the same names or that they came to Boston, had a kid, and then had the rest of
0: them? (laughs) Similarly, you run into places where there's the the same name of a town in different places. Yes. And and so they kind of have, well, one is in Massachusetts and one is in Rhode Island and, you know, it gets a little bit confusing there. But you have five tips. So let's go through your article just a little bit and talk about those tips, about some of the things to focus on. Number one, you said, where did your known information come from? Are there original sources to back it up?
2: Right. So when you're starting out on, you know, any new family that you want to research, you want to look at what you already have and then where it came from. And a lot of times it'll be packed down in the family or you got it from somebody's ancestry tree or, you know, whatever. As, and that's a good starting place, but you don't want to assume that everything is correct. So you want to make sure, are there sources attached? Do you know where their birth date came from? How did someone figure that out? And so you want to take kind of everything at the beginning with a grain of salt. And it's a good starting place, but don't assume that it's all correct.
0: You're absolutely right about that. And, you know, for beginners, it's an easy thing to do to look and see that, boy, all these people have this name or this couple on their family tree, and it must be right because it's out there so many times. That's not necessarily true.
2: Right. It can be, but oftentimes it's not. You know, it only takes one person to make a mistake, and then it just gets copied over and over and over and over again.
0: Yes. And you know what I've picked up on in the last several years, ever since Family Search and then Ancestry started attaching sources to the trees, we're seeing less of that. In other words, if there's bad information out there, it doesn't seem to have quite the lifespan that it did previously.
2: Yeah, it's definitely improving. And as the algorithms for the hints improve as well, then they tend to be more accurate.
0: Exactly. Your second tip is, do the geography and timeline make sense? This is a little about what we were talking about before.
2: Yeah, exactly with your your Boston example. This happens really often with foreign countries. So, you know, your ancestors are from Germany or Sweden, and if it's a place that you're not familiar with, you might say, oh, both of these places are in Germany. It's probably the same family, but you always want to pull out a map and at the very least just on Google Maps, you know, try to see how close these places are. Because, you know, if they're 100 miles away, it's unlikely. It's like your Boston example, that that the family moved back and forth. Not impossible but probably didn't happen
0: well and that kind of ties in with your third tip because with my Boston example it involved my most like sixth great grandfather John Fisher I mean hello <laughs> it's almost as bad as John Smith right. um, and the question is c- could there be two different people with the same name of course there could be and you have mm-hmm. to really go through remember that you're not just analyzing people and identifying them by their name it's also well who did this person and Mary? What was their occupation? Where did they live? What were the names of their children? There are so many other things that come into play when you're trying to identify somebody.
2: Yeah, i found um, in addition to those details, addresses can be really helpful. Yes. Because even if they had kids with similar names and you're trying to separate them out, if you can find their address and then you can plot them on the census or city directories as well, will tell you if there's two people with the same name in the same town sometimes, and that can be helpful to differentiate.
0: I have found that uh, city directories is perhaps one of the most underrated sources that's out there because you're able to create timelines. They provide occupations. They often provide the names of the spouses. You can see who lives next door. And you can show on a map even of the city exactly where they live, not just the town, but exactly where they lived on a given street. I mean, that can reveal an awful lot of information. I, I just love city directories. I use them all the time.
2: Right. And they're often every year, every other year, they're a lot more frequent than censuses, which are usually every 10 or five in the States.
0: Yes. Um, so here's your fourth tip. Were there circumstances surrounding the creation of the record that could lead to mistakes or misinformation? Oh, boy, does that happen? <laughs>
2: yes. Yes. <laughs> the super common one is probably informants on death certificates in the u.s yep so if a kid was reporting the names of their parents they may not have ever even met their grandparents they were told the name of their grandparents or they misremembered it you know it's a stressful time sure and then there's also people who lied <laughs> i mean that that happened and not necessarily out of malice it might be they wanted to join up for the army earlier than their age so they might have they were older than they were or things got lost in translation, or in the culture that they came from. Sure, uh, exact age wasn't super important. So there's a lot of reasons things can be slightly inaccurate.
0: Absolutely. And especially when it comes to getting back to the death certificate example, ages. You know, somebody might know correctly their parent's birth date, but they don't necessarily know the year. And so they'll put down they were 79 years old when they were 78, or they'll put down they were 76-year-old when they were 80 something like that and and that can really throw you off if you don't recognize the fact that dates in retrospect in terms of ages can really be thrown off especially in a death certificate where somebody else is reporting it because the dead person doesn't seem to provide the information for their own death record you notice that <laughs> It's a strange thing.
2: Yeah. And take Ireland, for example, Irish immigrants, their ages can vary like across a span of 10 years sometimes. And wow. So if you're doing Irish research, you really need to pay attention to like wide ranges.
0: Is there a reason for that?
2: I think just culturally age wasn't super important. Mm-hmm.
0: You no. Know? Yeah.
2: And so they're just estimated.
0: Well, and I've noticed, too, that a lot of people only age eight years over 10 years. Exactly. (laughs) In census records, you know, happens all the time. So here's your fifth tip. Could it be a clerical error? Keep in mind that records and people are not infallible. Many records, including censuses, were copied down by a clerk or someone who did not know the family in question, and they could have made a mistake in spelling, understanding the information, and or a copying error. Yeah, happened all the time, didn't it? Especially when it comes to actually transcribing information somebody else wrote down. And of course, they're interpreting what they heard. They may not have understood how something was spelled from a a culture that was uh, unfamiliar to them.
2: Exactly.
0: I saw once where a man who was obviously German, he took my British relative who was a great uncle and on his birth certificate called him Johann. Johan Wilhelm Waldron. And it's like, no, he he wasn't John William. He was just William Waldron. (laughs) And I thought that was pretty interesting. I'd never seen that before or since, but there's an example of it.
2: Yeah. When you have any kind of cultures colliding, the immigrants, to the U.S. is a good example where somebody might have said their name in an accent. And, you know, the person who was taking it down was from a completely different country and they might have misinterpreted. Or completely misspelled what they thought they heard.
0: Well, and imagine here with the example of this birth certificate, it would be easy for somebody to go on to the family search tree or put on their own tree on uh, Ancestry or something that this man's name was Johan. Because Mm -hmm. they found it on the birth certificate. It's a primary source, right? Right. (laughs) The information should have been very accurate. But this is where we have to go through and put together all the other information surrounding the life of this individual. And you'll quickly come to understand that, no, that wasn't his name. And so you want to put the name down the way it's used most commonly and then put in notes these variations.
2: That's the whole point of compiling evidence as a whole, right? It's like compiling a puzzle. So there might be some pieces that don't quite fit, and then you have to decide what is the most likely explanation for why this doesn't fit. But if it's only one document that doesn't fit and everything else is consistent, then it's probably that one document that's wrong.
0: I've seen Bible records where the first and middle name were inverted comparatively to the rest of their lives, and that's where it gets a little bit trickier because maybe the person then went by their middle name and basically took their first name and made it their middle name the rest of their days, and yet you would think the family Bible record, again, is like a primary source, and you kind of have to make decisions. But those are really the rarest of circumstances, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I've, I've seen people using their middle names fairly often. It depends on the region. Like, it seems to be more common in the South from what I've seen, Mm -hmm. but I think that's why people tend to get frustrated when they can't find someone. You kind of have to think outside the box and think, okay, maybe they're going by their middle name. Maybe it's initials, maybe it was misspelled and you have to get kind of creative trying to find them.
0: She's McKenna Cooper. She's a researcher and editor for Legacy Tree Genealogist. Just wrote a great blog on sorting out conflicting information. Just go to LegacyTree.com slash blog and you will find it. It's called Horses, Not Zebras. I love that, McKenna. Thanks for a great job and enjoy talking to you. Yeah,
2: thanks for having me.
0: You know, I love sharing with you ordinary people with extraordinary finds and how they found it. Hi, it's Fisher. It's Extreme Genes, America's family history show, and ExtremeGenes.com. And uh, very excited to be talking to one of our listeners from Little Rock, Arkansas, where he listens to Extreme Genes on K-A-R-N-F-M 102.9. And uh, Kelsey Dumb is on the line. Kelsey, I'm excited to hear about this story because I know you had a, a really difficult time figuring out who your grandmother was because of the fact she was from France.
3: Yeah, my mom and them have been trying to find any kind of information on that side of the family for 60 years, and I managed to do it in a few weeks. Wow. <laughs> mostly, by, mostly by luck, I'll say.
0: That's yeah. pretty fun. Give us a little background now here. Now, you're, this is your mother's mother. Your mother's mother was from France, but you just didn't know anything beyond that, and nobody else in the family did either. What do you know about your grandmother, or what did you know?
3: Well, all we really knew at first was Obviously, this is born and raised in France and met my grandfather during the war.
0: And he was a soldier.
3: Yes, he was with the U.S. Army. She came to America through the War Bride Act. And what I understand of that was during that war, basically, if you met somebody over there and you became engaged or got married, they could come over here and kind of pass up the process of citizenship. Even if they were just engaged, they could still come over here, but they would have to go through a certain process to become a legitimate citizen. Mm-hmm. And she apparently didn't do that. so Not I a somehow, lot of
0: records, then.
3: Not a lot of records at all. And she did somehow come to get a uh, Social Security number here. But all we knew was she had a brother and a sister, and I think we had her parents' names But they were very, very common French names,
0: so it was
3: really tough to to hunt them down.
0: (laughs) So what did you do?
3: Well, I first started with Ancestry.com. Then I found the site GeniaNet.
0: Yes. Yeah, which covers uh, France very extensively.
3: (laughs) Yeah, a lot of good resources for Europe in general, I guess, but uh, French particularly so I just basically run through and see what pops up and one thing would lead me to another I stumbled across a, a man's family tree that he was doing of course he was French and spoke no English so I googled translate was my best friend there for a little while but he was doing a Family tree for his wife. And it turns out his wife had the same last name as my great grandmother. Okay. And so I'm just looking at his tree, and a lot of names are kind of lining up. The number of people weren't right on point. But then again, his tree wasn't completed and he hadn't finished doing research. But it was enough to give me the information I needed. And when I started looking up some of these names, I found my grandmother's brother's wife.
0: Oh, wow. Still and, living. and
3: Still living, and I actually found her on Facebook. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great and, tool, uh, right? Anywhere in the world.
3: Yeah, and it was just still at that point kind of a shot in the dark. So I sent her a message. She had a daughter and a son, and... I was looking at the children's names, and the son had the exact same name as the father I was looking for. So I had to assume this is probably Pierre Jr.
0: Right. Name for his dad, yeah.
3: Yeah. So I found the daughter on Facebook as well and just kind of asked them some basic questions if they knew much about that side of the family. Their knowledge is pretty limited as well. And so we just kind of got to talking, and the daughter, which is actually my mother's first cousin, she sent me some pictures of what would be my great-grandmother.
0: Oh, wow. And
3: it just blew me away. (laughs) I I had a picture of my grandmother almost in the exact same pose. But probably 25 years later, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you talk about just a dead ringer, identical. And I went, you know, I think I may have found something here.
0: Wow. How did you figure out that you had the right people for sure?
3: Uh, Once we got to talking more and trading information, um, everything started lining up. And I have to thank the good man on GenieNet that was helping me. Because he actually was going down to the French archives and accessing records that I obviously couldn't access nor read French. Mm-hmm. And he was really a big help and uh, kind of point me in the right direction and give me some more concrete evidence and paperwork and birth certificates and stuff like that.
0: So you got the documentation then that proved everything you were looking for? Yes. Wow. And so you got great-grandma's picture. How about great-grandfather?
3: Yes, they did send me a couple really cool photos of my great-grandfather when he was in the French Army in World War One in 1917, I believe it was.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah.
3: And, and they even actually sent me a photo of my grandmother when she was 12 years old. And that's kind of when things started to get emotional and kind of set in because, I think my mom and her siblings had never seen a photo of their mother any younger than about the time when they were born.
0: Right, yeah. Childhood um, pictures. So now you've got this this big bonding thing going on with these folks in France. Have you had any uh, visual communication, or have you gone over there?
3: Yeah. Actually, we did a four-way video chat through Facebook. And people were kind of getting choked up a little bit. It was funny when I was trying to put two and two together and I was asking him, I said, are you related to a Georgette Albertine miller And then he said, well, Pierre had a sister, but we didn't know much about her. All we knew was her nickname was Zette Party in the USA. And I went, hmm. I said, why is that? They said, well, she left at a pretty young age to America, and we just kind of lost touch. No one ever heard from her again or anything. And I went, you know, that's that's got to be Grandma.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Unbelievable. Could they speak any English when you did the video call?
3: Yeah, my mom's first cousin and the daughter of the first cousin both speak pretty good English. I've been working on my French, too. I'm actually teaching myself, so Wow.
1: hopefully
3: I I can learn a little bit. But uh, I guess it would be my cousin, first cousin once removed. Is that what they would call, I guess, I would say third cousin, but I think the technical term is second cousin once removed, I think.
0: Well, Um, if your mother's first cousin would be your first cousin, one generation removed.
3: Okay. The daughter of her.
0: Okay, that's your second cousin.
3: yeah, she's real close to my age, and she's supposed to be bringing her two-year-old daughter to come visit in August. So, Wow. Really, really excited for that.
0: No kidding. Well, what an incredible journey and, uh, you know, life-changing kind of stuff. How's your family feeling about all this?
3: Uh, my mom was the only one that knew I was doing anything, and she wasn't really aware of the amount of information I had gathered So Christmas Day is when I called my aunts and uncles. One lives in Wisconsin, one's in Seattle, one's in Alaska. So, you know, I got to treat them to the information all separately. But um, I kind of got the silence and they were just kind of astonished because they thought they would leave this world not knowing anything about Nani, was what we called my grandmother. I guess they didn't think they would ever find anything out about Nani or that family. So it's been really important for even myself because I've always been really interested in finding our family.
0: Wow. He's Kelsey Dummies from Little Rock, Arkansas, and has had quite the breakthrough getting his family back into France and connecting with relatives. Good job, Kelsey. Thank
3: you. I appreciate you, and your show helped inspire me to do all this, so I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate you uh, sharing the story with everybody because it's great stuff. It is time once again for Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show, and ExtremeGenes.com. David Allen Lambert is back from the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. And uh, David, uh, we got an email from Lene Billingsley in Des Moines, Iowa, and she says, Guys, recently I was going through my grandma's box of stuff, and Mm -hmm. I found in it a high school ring. She was in the class of 1942. It has initials on it but it doesn't match anybody in the family. Any idea of what I can do with this to figure out who it belonged to?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting if it was a men's high school ring. Was this an ex-boyfriend that gave her the ring? You know, it's wartime. Did he go off and fight? So, I mean, obviously, high school rings generally are going to say the name of the school. Southern High School or something like that. If it's not the high school your grandmother went to, look and see what the surrounding towns were and what they call their high school. Maybe there's a mascot on the ring or something. And it's really easy. I mean, classmates.com existed, but now you can go on to Ancestry and look at thousands upon thousands of yearbooks from different years. You know, and if that doesn't work, contact the school. Unless it's a large city, it's probably a class of under 100 kids. And you could see if those initials match you know, maybe it's a friend. She died or something like that, and she got the ring. Or who knows? Maybe she had a metal detecting hobby in the '70s. You didn't know about, and she found it on a beach someplace. <laughs> but <laughs> not a lot of beaches in Iowa. No,
0: no. And wouldn't that be interesting too to research? I mean, we're talking about going back to the '40s. Most of the folks who graduated in the early '40s are gone now, uh, and, mm-hmm. and so many of them, as you mentioned, went off to World War II. So mm-hmm. uh, who knows? I mean, if this is a men's ring and we can figure out who the person was, wouldn't it be fascinating to research that person and their life? You could probably assume there was a relationship there at one time or another, but then wouldn't it be great to track down their descendants and pass that ring along to them? I, I'm sure that would be absolutely amazing.
1: That yeah, really is. You hear about a lot of times with metal detectorists finding high school rings and trying to bring them back to the original owner or the family's. You know, one of the things that might be fun is if you find out what town it is based on the high school, yearbooks are great and they may give a clue. So, you know, maybe they were dating. If you don't know your grandmother's previous boyfriends, it may give a clue in the yearbook. You know, my best of Susie something like yeah. that there could be could be something like that and then if you can narrow it down contacting the family you know you can find out his story and wouldn't it be great if he was somebody who was like in his 90s in the nursing home and you know there was some story that oh yeah i dated her for about a month gave her my ring and my letterman's jacket can I get the jacket back? <laughs> you know, it's you just never know what you're going to get. I mean, I'm sorry to poke fun in it, but there's any angle of reason why this ring could be there. I know a lot of times that people find stuff in their grandparents, things in, you hope for those connections, then you find out they just like the antiques, or they bought it at a yard sale, or something like that. I have somebody who has swords from the Civil War, and he says, my ancestor must have collected these at the Battle of Gettysburg. And I'm like, "Uh, well, first off, these aren't american swords they're italian swords right 30 years after the war sure they probably just collected the things as antiques so there's any possible story there so keep digging <laughs> maybe she can find more about the the ring when she contacts the high school
0: oh, and we should add in too that once you're able to identify who the person is hopefully from the initials and hopefully there's not more than one person with the same initials you right. can do a little newspaper research as well to find out mm-hmm. more about them and maybe the next of kin, and maybe make a connection through Family Search or Ancestry or one of the other great sites. That's very true. All right. Great question, Lene. Thanks for sending it in. And uh, Dave, we got an email here from Cameron Smithson. Doesn't say where he's from. And he says, mm-hmm. Guys, turns out my dad was a radio DJ before he met my mother. He died when I was young and she doesn't know anything about his career. Is there some way to track down what radio stations he may have worked for? Interesting. Dave, what do you have on that? Wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a second here, kid. I
1: think that Mr. DJ
0: needs to turn this record on. Uh, I suppose so. I suppose so. Uh, Actually, Cameron, this isn't that difficult because, uh, fortunately, Billboard magazine and Cashbox magazine have largely all been uh, digitized. And it really depends, obviously, on the era in which your father was involved. But there are a lot of trade magazines And I bet you you can really say the same for a lot of different trades, right? That there would be publications that are out there on that. But in the radio industry, the trades often follow them wherever they go. So anytime there's a move out there, it's Fred Flintstone has moved from this station in Tyler, Texas to Cincinnati, Ohio. And now he's on this station and they'll talk about which shift that they're on and maybe they're joining a morning show or something like that and sometimes these will go back and explain how long they had been at the previous place and maybe some other previous stations and really a simple Google search might yield for you exactly what you're looking for and you know kind of in line with what we were talking about with the class ring here a few moments ago once you get that information it would be great for you to find out if those stations still exist or maybe with a new set of call letters and see if there are any histories of those written up anywhere. And a lot of times you'll see stations' histories are online with pictures of the people who are on the air, you know, with the control boards and the microphones. One other thought is, too, if your dad passed young, Maybe many of his colleagues that he worked with at the time are still out there somewhere. So if you can research that station and find some of those people, maybe they're retired now or whatever, you can reach out to them and see if they might have some stories for you.
1: That's really some great suggestions. Now, would the FCC have any history of a station or know if it closed or merged? No.
0: Well, those mergers and changes are often in the trade magazines themselves. You know, there's so much that's online right now. And recently I talked about my half-brother's Hot Rod Club. He died in 1963. Right. And we found a guy online who would posted pictures from the Hot Rod Club. And I was able to get a hold of him and get stories about my half-brother that I never could have gotten at this late date. I mean, it's been 57 years since he passed away. So there is uh, so much yet you can do. Don't give up and thinking that just because you don't know and your mother doesn't know much about it, that that can't be found with a little due diligence. So get online. And you know, that's the thing I tell people all the time. Have you tried this site called Google? It's amazing <laughs> what you can do with it, and, uh, and, and no doubt there's more and more stuff coming on to newspapers.com. You can use that maybe to find their name listed in uh, a radio listings, like the television listings, and see if their yep. show is found there. I know many of my old shows are still there as well, so check it out, and uh, good luck to you, Cameron, on that. Great stuff, David. Thanks so much. And thanks to you, Cameron, for the question. And of course, if you ever have a question for Ask Us Anything, it's a simple matter of emailing us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. David, talk to you again next week. All right, sounds good. Talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to familysearch.org.